Um, this morning, my task is to discuss living documents. Um, before I begin, though, this morning, as it may well be apparent to some of you who've not had to endure a lecture of mine before, um, as well as to those who have graciously done so, um, I have formally been diagnosed with multiple pronunciations disorder, so in case the event of going in and out of different pronunciations, I would just uh, beg your patience with me and, um, and pray that we can be well pointed toward um, just encouragement in Christ and His Word. Um, so let's, let's open in prayer as we begin this time. Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege it is that you've revealed yourself to us in your word and that you've opened our, our eyes by your spirit and our hearts to love that which you've revealed of yourself in your word. We pray this morning, Father, that you would be honored in our time together, that we would be encouraged in the truths of Scripture, and that as we consider some outworkings of these truths, that we would grow in our discernment in how we can address a variety of different, um, different issues in the world around us on a biblical framework. We commit this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm reminded of a, a friend of my dad's in high school who had recently come to the Lord, and he was to lead a Bible study. There were many questions on everyone's minds, and oftentimes when a question would come to him, what does something mean? Well, he as a new believer, he, he thought, well, let, let me give other people an opportunity to answer this. So he'd go around the circle and see, well, would anyone like to, to address what this means? So would you like to, to answer what this means? Would, would you? And, and if he'd gone around the whole circle and everyone had said, no, that's all right, I, I don't know, or I'd, I would pass on answering, well, then he would lean back in his chair and he'd say, well, then, let me tell you what it means, with full license to do so. So as to constrain ourselves with some preliminary bounds, let's visit the context of this verse here and consider what was on the apostle's mind, what had been preceded by his pen when he gets to this strange image. Would anyone like to take a stab at the context of this passage? All right, well, let me tell you then. Chapter 1 of Hebrews largely discusses the comparison between Jesus and angels. And it focuses on the fact that Jesus is greater. He's far better than angels because of the ministry that he's performed. And he goes to discuss that, drawing from Old Testament texts to illustrate that even from long ago it was said so of Jesus. And then he moves on to discuss how Jesus has helped us as mankind in the flesh by becoming as one of us in flesh and blood, as we are, so that he would be able to make propitiation for our sins in the flesh, as we are, in which form that sacrifice must be made. And then through 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4 of the letter to Hebrews, the, the apostle goes into an exposition at large on Psalm 95. Now if you read through the letter to the Hebrews out loud, it really does flow very much like a sermon. And I'd encourage you to do that, whether with friends or simply in your room. It's a worthwhile um, experience, enjoyment to think through, to, to listen to it as though a sermon. Because he really does work through a bunch of Old Testament texts 
And he discusses it as we might within an expository sermon. Chapters 3 and 4, he addresses the psalm, specifically Psalm 95. Now in Psalm 95, the psalmist had pointed back to the Exodus. And he considers this fact that the Exodus, people had hardened their hearts to what God had called them to do. And we see that even within the text of Hebrews, he goes back and forth between the text of this psalm in chapters 3 and 4. Perhaps the most lengthy portion being there in verse 7 of chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. And so lies the setting for this comment then on the living Word of God, the active Word of God, the comment on the Exodus where they had seen the work of God for 40 years and yet still hardened their hearts and rebelled against Him. They'd gone their own way this way and that. Can you imagine a people that had seen bread fall out of the sky, that had woken up to, not feet, I guess, meter <laughs> of quail, scattered across the land, that they gather, they see His works, water from a rock, and so on. Miracle upon miracle. And yet those same people, having seen the work of the Lord, were the very same people that hardened their hearts against God and did their own thing. Almost all of whom never entered the promised land. They never entered the land where they had been promised rest. And so within this discussion of the text, the apostle here, considering the implications of the psalmist, in light of the history in the Exodus, he says, now, if they didn't have an opportunity to enter his rest, but the psalmist, way long after that, he says, today there's still a day to listen to his voice not like those who failed to enter His rest, then does it not imply that there is still a day today where we can enter that rest? It couldn't have been something that was promised simply by Joshua, leading them into a land itself. That couldn't have been the fullness of the rest. Why? Because after that, the psalmist still says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, and so on. In other words, he draws from the Exodus account, and he draws from the Psalms, commenting on the Exodus account, and he considers afresh in the light of the ministry of Christ that what God had said at those various times still held true. They didn't mean one thing at one time and another thing at another. 
Even from one age to another age, one generation to another. No. What God had spoken was sure. It continued forever. His word was faithful. The word of God was not simply dictate to whatever reasoning we might deduce. That is to say, if I can figure a way to interpret the scripture however I'd like to interpret it, then that must be the living, the, the liveliness of the word of God, that it can mean this, but in another day it can mean something else. I want to suggest that the, the wake of thinking toward that understanding of the lively Word of God, that it changes from day to day, from generation to generation, is not how we ought to understand the living Word of God. But rather, that the faithfulness of what that Word demonstrates, that is, the character of God that it demonstrates, is lively. Because it reveals the truth of an unchanging character of our God that is consistent from day to day. It lives. It is consistent. What was spoken remains. And so we have the liveliness of His Word. I want to take two digressions this morning. One to consider within the scientific realm and one within the legal realm. Some of the implications of this discussion. And it was touched in part, actually, in the, the scientific discussion by Uncle Philip this morning, where he was talking about Galileo and his contrast to what had been otherwise determined within the church that this is how science ought to be thought. For so long, within Aristotelian logic, very much in the wake of Aristotle, even Thomas Aquinas, one of the most noted Catholic scholars, he largely copied Aristotle's work in the concepts of a deductive method of reasoning. The reasoning was left to what could be deduced. If one could think of how these ideas connected, then one had a proper argument for the validity, the truthfulness of our scientific pursuit. So if one had a greater mind, a greater power of deduction, that trumped over a smaller, more petty mind. And so the philosophers, Aristotle, or a thinker as Aquinas, led the charge in deducing how we ought to approach not only Scripture, but science. How do we understand this world around us? By deduction, by reasoning. But when the Puritan wake had come through, and they grounded the basis of their study in the fact that the mind of mankind is not infallible. That is, we are very faulty in our thinking, in our deductions. We've got to approach this more carefully, more testingly, to actually compare what we deduce with what is observable, what is testable, what's repeatable, falsifiable. And so someone a little bit later on, as Francis Bacon, wonderful name, he had come up with the scientific method. And I, we won't go into detail here now. But in a nutshell, rather than the deductive, 
reasoning of Aristotle, Aquinas, and so forth, that had married itself within the church to a very particular view of creation and science. So that to agree with that science was to agree with the church. To disagree with that science was heretical because it was merged with the theology of the church. But Francis Bacon, he, in formulating this scientific method, sought to merge not only deductive reasoning, whereby we create hypotheses, we look to reason through what could be plausible, how ought we to understand where we see something that doesn't fit, how can we address it? But to test those deductions by observable data. And so it was a mix. There were about three stages within his method that were deductive, and about three in his method that were inductive, or that were a test of those things. To analyze, is this true? Why? Because of the assumption that our deductive skills, our mental capacities, are not all that they should be. Our wires aren't quite rightly connected. And so we had the inductive reasoning. And his book on the new organon was very much of a rebuttal to Aristotle's organon, which was his treatise, as it were, on deducing scientific understanding. Really a logic of deduction. And so when the Puritans took this role of seeing the fallibility of the mind, that we are not only sinners, but with all creation having fallen and our mental capacities not being all that they ought to be, not being able to deduce and simply arrive at the conclusion itself, they sought to approach their study of the Scriptures in the same way. Not simply then to deduce whatever they might reason, perhaps more closely in line with some of the Jewish rabbis, who I, I think are perhaps some of the most commendable men in their creativity. I think, wow, how could they get from this to this? And they do. And you just think, the, the creativity in the explanations, you think, wow, that's not really a great tie, but they have the deduction to make it work. But the Puritans said, no, we can't simply rely on whether we can deduce it, whether we can argue a coherently logical, a coherently deductive explanation for this. But we must test the way that we are studying the Scriptures in that same way as well. So in contrast then within the Catholic Church at the time, which had largely been interpreted by the Pope of that day, Various priests interpreting for the people, reading from the Latin and describing, this is what we ought to believe. For we, as greater minds, can explain and clarify what the Scriptures ought to mean. Within the parables then, well, what does this picture in the parables mean? Well, here's what it means. Let me tell you. And so... Largely was the discussion within the Catholic Church at the time. There were many aspects of their theology that were simply deduced by the highest esteemed mind of the day. But in response, the Puritans said, we must come to the Scriptures in a way that's consistent, a way that's the same from day to day, from age to age. For if God revealed His character from the creation, and then through His law that was given, 
and through His prophets as He spoke through long ago at many times and in many ways. And then through Christ Himself. And if each of those facets is a consistent revelation of His character, an unfolding of the character of God, then they are living in their substance. And we must understand the consistency with how we approach the Scriptures. And so they're hermeneutic to biblical study. But that's a sort of a rough touch on the scientific field. In contrast to Aristotelian logic, coming to inductive logic with Bacon and others. What about legal systems? How might we see this, this concept of living documents, living words played for there? Well, ironically, it was within the same terminology that we see in Hebrews 4. In the American system, the American Constitution, just to, to give a little American flavor this morning, we have to include that somewhere. And considering the attack that the Constitution has undergone for roughly the last 50 years, quite, quite extensively, we see the, the term coined in about 50 years ago of the living Constitution. How are we to understand this governing document? Well, it's a living document. What was the implication with that? What was the clarification with that? Well, they said, if we truly are to appropriate the laws within this Constitution, the governing clarity by which our nation is assembled, then we ought to really understand that there's, there's systems within our country that change from day to day. Or in their own words, there are evolving standards of decency that we must address. That is, something that was right yesterday, something that was clear and coherent 200 years ago, really, that's very antiquated and out of date today. And we, we ought to approach that very differently in our world today. So when we find words in the Constitution that are rather difficult to address, rather than amending the Constitution to counter within our day-to-day -day or within our society today, the idea of the living constitutional interpretation was to say, rather than clarifying it, amending it, as is prescribed within the Constitution, no, we will reinterpret it. And who's to reinterpret it? The judges. So a case comes before the court, and the judges, on the basis of the Constitution, have to decide, is this right or wrong? Who's at fault? How do we go forward? Their sole job being to judge on the basis of a fixed understanding of that law. Not so much anymore, because now that fixed understanding, once we've freed ourselves to a living constitution, it can mean whatever I'd like it to mean. And so judges no longer function as the legal determiners of a specific law but they can create whatever law they want. No wonder then, for those who may have followed in the American system, the recent uh, appointment of the Supreme Court Justice, Amy Coney Barrett, it's no wonder then that that has become so intensely political. Back 30, 40 years ago, you could get a 97 majority vote to affirm this is a good judge, they have 
good principles. They have tremendous track record of judgments that they've made, of standing on the basis of law. And so we'll appoint him or her to the Constitute Supreme Court. But no, if judges now are to interpret the law as to be meaning whatever they want, boy, we have got to fight to put in someone who thinks about the law and thinks about society in the same way that we do. And so now, with this last appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, there was about a 50, I think it was a 54 um, vote for her out of uh, 100 altogether in the Supreme Court. 54 people, just over half to, to put her in. And all the rest of the, the Democrats, they said, you know, we're not even showing up to vote as sort of a, a counter, a, a measure just to, to do a part with what was going on during this time. It's no wonder it becomes so political. If we understand this living document, as in, it can mean whatever we want it to mean. The tragedy of that for a nation, then, is if we continue to assume that. The freedoms that are clarified within the Constitution, which prohibit the whole reign of power across two centralized of a government, they spread out that government, if a group of judges can now determine what the Constitution means, they have full sway of the binding power of that document to say, this document means that you ought to be doing that. And now everyone across the nation has to comply with that. Why? Because it's the Constitution. Our nation is governed by that, or by those judges who interpret that. Well, I digress. But if we consider then the biblical law, again, to, to, to go back to the implications on biblical law, this same sort of framework of adopting the Constitution, wherein when the Constitution was written, it was sent out across the nations, across the, the states, the people that were present within the country, and they read the words of the text, and they agreed to ratify them. That is, they agreed that a majority of those people representing the population within the state said, yes, we agree to be governed by these documents. And there were changes that needed to take place, amendments that could be written in. But they agreed that this was the founding and governing document of the people. That same sort of mentality actually comes from Exodus, if you recall. The law is given, and then we find after the people receive that law in Exodus 19, verse 7 of Exodus 19, says that Moses came, called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. It was, if you would, the first consent of the governed. Here is the law that's been laid out. God has spoken, revealed His character in this law. The people gather together and read the words of this law and say, yes, we will be governed by this law. And so we have then the history of Israel within that unfolding of the law. When this law was given, though, it's so important to remember that God's word is truth. 
That is, God's Word cannot change from day to day. What was spoken in that law continues in its effect. That is, it has to be fulfilled. It has to continue, for it revealed the very unchanging character of God. The problem with the biblical law, or any law for that matter, is it reveals that by the presence of the law, we have sin in our midst. Things are not as it ought to be. For if we were all perfect, we wouldn't need a law to govern, to instruct us how we ought to walk. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need a law, but by the very presence of the law, we are indicated that things are not as they ought to be. And our freedom is not gained by interpreting the law however we'd like. No. Our freedom is that we are free in so much as we are in Christ. We are free in so much as we are in Christ because of His unchanging character that's revealed from one generation to the next. And so, in, in His plan to redeem us, God sought to do so in a way consistent with His Word. For rather than coming to Christ, and Christ coming to earth, he didn't seek to destroy the law. But God saw that it would be more glorious and in fact only fitting because of the character that He'd revealed in His law earlier on. That Christ would fulfill the law. Not destroy, but fulfill the law. That is, He came to live under every word of the law as even the people of Israel had agreed, yes, we are under this law perhaps redundant in that sense in that God had given them a law, but Christ also submitted Himself to the very words of God, the very words of the law, the words of the prophets, and so forth. Even as we might think after the resurrection when He meets the couple on their way to Emmaus, the most profound sermon I would love to have overheard that, where He goes all through Moses and the prophets, and he explains how each of those pointed to him. They were fulfilled in Christ. They weren't nullified. They weren't simply interpreted a different way, another way. They were fulfilled in Christ who had come under the law. And therein lies the beauty of the law. It points us to Christ. The words that God has spoken, the lively words of God, point us to the very Word of God made flesh. God has freely constrained Himself to His Word. That's very distinct from an Islamic understanding of who God is. Within Islam, their understanding of God is that He is entitled to whatever He wants, to do at His whim whatever He would like, even if it goes against His Word. And so potentially the outworking of that within Islamic society, where it's said that if you lie to someone, so long as it's advancing the kingdom, so long as it's bringing more into submission to Allah, well, you can lie or you can trick or you can do whatever. Why? Because, ah, it's praise to God. We're, we're simply following His example in that sense. We're free to do whatever we'd want, as He, far more so, is free to change His mind at any time. 
Not so within the Judeo-Christian worldview, where God has constrained himself to his words, that everything he says must come to pass. Is he a man that he would change his mind? No. No, he rules over men, and what he says comes true, for it reveals him. And yet even when he came as a man, he comes to bind himself to those words that he had made some time before, and to the sentence of death that we were under because of those words being revealed, because of the justice of God and the true judgment of God on all who disobeyed his words. Like those even in the Exodus, those wilderness wanderers who saw his works for 40 days and still went their own way. If the word of God is living and active, then they are under that curse of the law inasmuch as they've turned from it. So where does the apostle go then if we bring ourselves back to Hebrews 4. Where does the apostle turn when he makes this comment? He considers the failing example of the people who had wandered in the wilderness, only two of whom, above 20, entered the promised land, and all the youngsters as well. Then he says, well, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There's a different understanding of the rest that God brings from simply a land or a time in past, even in creation. That is, that his rest was over in the seventh day of creation. No, we enter that rest still today, as the psalmist calls us to. And then he gets to that passage, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the mind. That word that God had spoken from creation, from the law, from the prophets, through Christ and the apostles, is cutting because it consistently reveals the very nature of God. But then he goes on in perhaps the most glorious description in this letter that summarizes the heart now of Christ in heaven towards sinners on earth. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. That's where the apostle's heading. Christ is far superior to angels. And Christ, who is so superior, has ministered to mankind by becoming in flesh and blood as we are to free us from the law, to free us from His righteous judgment and our enslavement to sin. 
And even when we consider the consistent failings of God's people through history, we are pointed by the truth of those words to one who came to fulfill those words and who ministers to us even now in our weaknesses. So the exhortation, come to him. Come near to him and find help in times of need. Praise God for his living word.